This Sunday um, happened to be where we talk about grief and, and sadness. And of course, a lot of us have been reflecting on Kobe's death. And so uh, I'll share a little bit of my experience, but how did you react when you heard that Kobe died? And um, I know some of us don't feel attached to that story. Most of us probably do. So if, you're, if, you're, if he's just kind of another celebrity to you, I get that. I'm not there, but I get it. So when was the last time uh, you were really sad? You can answer that as well. And then the second question to either of the first is, what do you do with sadness? Like when you feel sad, what do you do with it? Okay. If you need a seat, by the way, we have plenty of chairs in the front for those of you guys who are in the back. All right. Break off into groups of two or three. We'll give you guys a little bit of time and then we'll, we'll talk about uh, processing sadness uh, in our sermon today. So um, for me, I found out through Pastor Dave. He came up to me after service last Sunday and told me about Kobe's passing. And I think most of the time when we hear something so tragic, it's, we go into denial. So I just totally didn't believe him, and <laughs> even though he's a pastor here and a good friend of mine as well. And, uh, you know, I'm sourcing because every good millennial knows that that's very important. And TMZ came up, so I'm like, oh, thank God. It's TMZ. It can't be true. And then, um, of course, as we continue to read articles, we found out about how devastating it was, just the way that his life was cut short, and then his daughter passing and seven other passengers, mothers, fathers, sons, daughters. Um, and I just couldn't help envisioning him holding his daughter as the helicopter went down, feeling helpless. You know, he's a superhero to a lot of us. But... Um, you know, as a father, just not being able to protect your kid is, is like a nightmare, uh, every nightmare. And so for me, Kobe was a hero. I, I was, I'm just a few years younger than him. And um, he lived all of our basketball dreams. You know, if you were a baller, I'm, I loved basketball. I gave four ACLs to it, and you only have two, right? So I loved basketball. And uh and uh, watching him was like watching all of my dreams happen, being recruited out of high school, going to the Lakers. Um, and then a commentary talked about kind of the mourning in not only his amazing career, but just being able to see him grow up. He spent more years in front of the camera, speaking to us, uh, living out our dream than he did away from us, right? By the time he, he retired, that he had spent 20 years in the league and 17, 18, outside of it. And so there was a deep attachment for many of us to Kobe, his work ethic, the way he uh, lived a lot of his life, and, and his drive, and just the sheer daydreaming of, like, watching him play and replacing my face with his. Because that's, that's pretty much the difference, right? Just my face. Um, I, he's the first celebrity that I ever shed tears for. I remember when he limped off the game uh, tearing his Achilles. I, I, I followed that whole game. I remember he injured, um, I think it was his left knee, and limped a little bit, but kept playing. And then uh, a few minutes later, he tore his Achilles, and he's limping on the ground and, and stands up to shoot free throws, walks off the court. And I just, I couldn't contain myself. I was just so sad for him. And then again, uh, on Monday, uh, after kind of the shock and awe wore off, um, seeing Laker Nation mourn for him. I think in some ways, like Shaq and, you know, Jerry West and just so many people gave us permission to grieve. Uh, so many players gave us permission to grieve, especially as maybe men, and uh, just entering into that with them. 
other articles came up about um, the sexual assault case. And I, I was able to move into that as well because I recognized that that's part of his story. I reread all that had happened uh, 11 years ago and just was able to grieve that alongside of my affirmation or my affections for him to say that there was this part of his life. And for me, it, it's more honoring to hold the whole person than only a part of him. And so I was able to um, just enter this week with a heavy heart and, and then to see the heaviness kind of drape over so many of us who, who love basketball and who loved Kobe. And people like, I think um, you got a little bit of like fan props the more you were sad. I mean, not, people didn't do it for that reason, but I did like, I just internally acknowledged, oh, he loved Kobe more because he's like at Staples Center weeping on the ground. Like <laughs> I gave him props for doing that. I don't think, uh, I don't remember another time where like guys got props for tears. And that's, there was something about this moment that allowed so many people to enter into grief, uh, almost as a gift, I think, um, to, to our city. But when I think about my history with sadness, um, it's, it's me like dragging it around, you know? It, as a part of my uh, research this today, I did, I watched Inside Out, and I read Kobe articles, <laughs> and I read the Bible too. Um, and, uh, and joy hates sadness, and it makes so much sense. Like, all the other emotions uh, have, have function, right? Anger protects things that are vulnerable to us. We just love joy because she's joy. And then disgust and fear kind of keep us safe. But sadness in the story and in my own life feels like she serves no function but waits in, on my ankle. And, and I just always pride myself for not being sad, never crying, and um, being super tough, you know, that things that are hard for other people don't feel that difficult for me to get over, and I am joyful all the time. Like, that I was kind of known for that. Uh, maybe I still am. And so sadness felt like this, just this burden to drag around without anything good coming out of her. And, um, and then I, I went to therapy. And I didn't go to therapy because there were things to grieve in my life. I didn't go to therapy because I thought, oh, I need to process this like repressed sadness. I went to therapy because I couldn't get a handle on my addictions. I couldn't get a handle on gambling. I couldn't get a handle on pornography. And my therapist, instead of like, you know, putting me in a straitjacket, which is how I felt in terms of what would be necessary to stop doing those behaviors, she helped me process sadness. And it was an amazing gift. Um, but I think about my whole life being an avoidance of sadness, right? The, the Bible teaches us to move through sadness in order to find joy. I was having coffee with one, someone at, our, at Renew, and he said, man, I'm so happy we're going through this book um, and talking about emotional health because I've never heard it from the Bible. But I think we don't hear it from Scripture because Maybe those who are teaching scripture to us aren't, haven't processed uh, their own emotional health, some of them. And because two-thirds of Psalms is about grieving, two-thirds, that Psalms tackles grieving and lament more than all the other emotions combined. Lamentations is about sadness, it's about lamenting. And the book of Job has that as a deep theme. We see Jesus 
enter into sadness over and over again. But what, what I've learned over the course of my life is how to dodge it, right? That I use distractions by working without boundaries, doing overtime, keeping busy, going from one event to another in order to not feel sadness. I put my ears into music, my eyes into uh, the TV or Netflix. I, instead of moving internal, I let my eyes and ears and mind be external always. So I don't see my own heart. Uh, addictions, I talked about, uh, for me, gambling and pornography. For other people, shopping, eating. Uh, Lemurance is a, is a really fascinating word. It's, it speaks about this addiction of falling in love. That we want that feeling of romance and intoxication. And we want kind of only that part of the relationship, which is really unsustainable. But the theme of every chick flick movie I've ever seen and every episode of Sex in the City, right? So, so we can be addicted to limerence, and, and we have access to that more than ever in terms of uh, all the dating apps that we can use. And then, of course, numbing, repressing through, again, all of these different facets. Um, here's the, it's the J-curve. There's a lot of iterations of this. I kind of merged this with some of our material this morning and, and the book of Job. Let me describe it to you. There's, and then we'll go through this through the course of the sermon. There's our normal life. This is kind of when everything's okay. We have our health is intact, our family is present, uh, we have our job, we're paying the bills. It's kind of our default norm. And then we start going through loss in different moments of our life. And most of the losses we go through, if we want to cover it up through distraction, numbing, and addictions, we can. Um, if sometimes we cover it up through religion. Our religion can be intact as we're going through losses. But the wall, as Kristen described last week, is the place in which our religion falls apart. And I would say our self-medication for sadness uh, dissipates. Our numbing doesn't stop the pain anymore. We go through so much loss that we, we are forced to grieve, to feel like death. But out of there, um, there's a resurrection. And so we look at the life of Job, and we think about uh, his story and his norm. He was the richest man of the East. How, that's an amazing way to describe someone. Like, he's not the richest in the family, in the, in the church, in the city. He's the richest man of that side of the world, you know? And maybe if you go far enough, you wrap around the whole entire globe. Like, he's... he's He's the Steve Jobs, the, the Warren Buffett of his day, right? The Bill Gates. He had, all, he had like thousands of camels, and those are like show-off items. That's a Ferrari, right? You have a horse. My horse packs its own water in a camel bag that's attached to him, right? Like we've been in, and so he just has thousands of those guys. He has thousands of sheeps and goats and servants. He has a, a huge family, three daughters, seven sons, and, and that's his norm. And then he goes through a tremendous loss. We look at, we account for his loss in the first and second chapter of Job, that he loses all 10 kids, um, there's a huge wind that blows, and, and the building collapses, and all his kids pass away. If you've ever had to bury one kid, it's, it's almost, I don't know how you recover from that. And then he did it 10 times. And then in the first chapter, we have just 
life just stacks on top of him. One servant after another enters his home proclaiming calamity. Uh, a portion of his livestock is killed by the enemy. Another portion is taken up by fire from heaven. How can you not believe God isn't against you at that point? And then we see him inflicted with disease. He becomes impoverished. It's like seeing Bill Gates on the side of a freeway holding a hungry sign. I mean, it would blow our minds. And that's what Job is. He's on the side of a freeway. He's in rags. And he's also covered in boils. He becomes unrecognizable. His friends don't know who he is anymore. I mean, this is the depth of suffering. His marriage falls apart as his wife says, curse God and die. And his friends uh, torment him. But the story of Job's life None of us probably have suffered like him, but, and yet the story of his life is really the story of all of our lives in the end. Um, now, if you live long enough into your 80s and 90s, your bodies become broken, don't they? You're, you lose vision. Sometimes you're bedridden. You've buried all of your family. That's your generation and up. Your closest friends, you've gone to one funeral after another. And even if you have money, it means nothing. You, you can't eat good food. You can't travel. So at the end of our life, we all live Job, but he, it just happens earlier for him. And for others, it happens throughout the course of our life. That's something extremely sobering to think about. So as we go through losses, we hit the wall, and the wall forces us into grieving. The wall becomes a place in which our Christianity, uh, in terms of the religious, kind of legalistic, fundamentalist aspect, doesn't sustain anymore. That you're not comforted by all things work for the good of those who love God. You're not comforted by God is good all the time. Like, those things hit a wall. Um, and we see this wall play out in Job chapter 3, verse, uh, chapter 3 through 38. The majority of Job is this dialogue about religion and suffering. And it's extremely philosophical. It actually takes place almost from a, a jury perspective, a defendant and an accuser. Job is defending his innocence as his friends is accusing him because their view of religion is that if you do evil, you suffer. And so the only reason you're suffering to this extent is because you've sinned against God. And again and again, Job comes back and said, I have not sinned against God. I have not sinned against him. I am an innocent sufferer. And again and again, they repeat their case. And, and yet that's where the wall meets us. It meets us when religion, in the way that all of us know it, in Hinduism, in Buddhism, in Judaism, where you're rewarded for your good and you're punished for your bad, it's, it, it, it doesn't make sense anymore. And you delve deeper where our hope, my hope, is that you meet Jesus. And so through the wall is walking into grief and death. And again, I think about joy and sadness. And in this uh, amazing source material, Inside Out, it speaks about the, the, good, the benefits of sadness. And I've also taken this from a, a friend who's a therapist. <clears throat> Here are the benefits of sadness. So all these emotions have different functions. It keeps us away from danger. It protects the vulnerable parts of our life. Joy is just great. Um, sadness is the healer of our souls. 
Sadness puts us back together. Sadness is what allows our soul to form and mend again. Um, when we aren't willing to engage in sadness, in a way we're not really willing to heal. That we repress and store the hurt and trauma instead of allowing it to be processed and kind of come outside of us. I want, when I was in college, I've shared this story before, I loved longboarding and I was an idiot because I thought I was invincible, even after tearing four ACLs. And so I would park at the top of the UCI parking stru structure while everyone else, while it's busy and cars are moving and stuff, and I would longboard down because I'm invincible, and I would split cars. So like one car's going up, mom and dad, I'm sorry about this, I'm sorry I abused all the things you've given me. Um, just, just risking it all for nothing. Anyways, the car's going up the structure, car's going down, and I'll, I'll split them, and then I'll like carve into the turn, and it was, it was dumb. And one day I fell. Surprise, so I got this gnarly gash on my arm, right? It's bleeding everywhere, and it's super deep. Uh, you can see the white of my uh, arm, you know, and um, and I was like, okay, I'm just gonna bandage this up and move on. So I put, I bought band-aids. I bought, I bought some alcohol. So I threw some alcohol in it and I, and I wrapped it. And then um, it didn't heal and it started to smell and things would like leak out of my bandages. This is like a few weeks later. Um, then I thought, you know, maybe I should see a doctor. So a week after that, I went to a doctor. <laughs> And, uh, and then basically they looked at my arm and it was swollen. I mean, because I never took off the bandage, right? Because that would be gross. And so, <laughs> so we took off the bandage and, and uh, it had swollen, it was discolored. And this nurse came in and she's just scrubbing it. And I'm like, I'm like, it was like these really prickly, like a super prickly plastic bristly sponge. She's just scrubbing it as hard as she can, I think. And I'm like wanting to cry, but trying not to. And she's like, oh, you can like longboard down a parking structure, but you can't take a bristly sponge. So she was, she had a lot of compassion. And, um, <laughs> And she just got all of the pus and the asphalt that was still in there and, um, and other medical terms. She got it all out. And then she wrapped it back up. We checked in every week. And I still have my arm, right? Praise God. <laughs> Praise the Lord. I think it's harder when, um, when it doesn't smell bad, when people can't see it, when they're not pointing at it and saying, you look like you're in pain and you should see a doctor. It's harder when people assume you're doing okay. And I think sadness allow, is the healer of our souls. It allows us to process and expel the things that are toxic to us. Um, you know, it, sadness forces us to slow down. And we've talked a lot about this as a church, kind of voluntarily slowing down into silence and solitude. But, but sadness forces us to. It incapacitates us. We can't go into problem-solving mode. We can't uh, direct our next steps. It, it pulls us back so that our favorite food becomes tasteless, our favorite activities become joyless, so that we look inward, so that we stop numbing and distracting and being addicted, and we can look into our soul. And it gives us the ability to find reality again, to reorient us. When we skip over sadness, we're living in a false reality. We haven't grieved the loss. We haven't come to terms with it. 
But sadness allows us to grip truth again. And it's out of truth that we can rebuild. When we're rebuilding without going through sadness, we're rebuilding on something fake, on something unstable. And, and it's only truth that can weather storms. So sadness allows us to get our arms around truth. Sadness is what leads to acceptance, right? It's not anger. It's not denial. It's not bargaining. Sadness brings us to acceptance. And acceptance is a great gift. It gives us reality. It allows us to mourn our losses and rebuild from, from where we really are. And we see um, that in the book of Job. Um, and last, the second thing I think about is how, do we be, how can we be sad? Um, because even if I understood those benefits, I would be really scared to enter in. I felt like my first engagement with sadness and anger um, was like going into darkness with no brakes, no gas pedal, and no steering wheel. Like, I don't know how far this will go. I don't know if I'll just be here for the rest of my life, like enveloped in it and, and there forever. I remember talking to my therapist about anger, which is another emotion I had extreme trouble uh, engaging in. And I told her, I, I feel like if I get angry, it'll escalate forever and then I'll kill someone. Like, that's, I was fearful of that. I've never punched someone in the face since high school, you know, like, I'm not a violent person. Um, but, but isn't that how some of us see our emotions? That there's no, there's no control. And we don't know how long it will go and how, how far deep we'll end up. We don't know if there's a way out. And so I feel like Job teaches us how to be sad. He teaches us how to enter in. There's this really amazing um, quote. Uh, this is how I do references. I say there's an amazing quote. It's not mine. Someone else said it. That's my best reference. Um, where someone was saying how he, to find the sunrise again, you don't chase the sunset. You turn around and you go east and you walk in the darkness until the sun rises again. So we, as a community, as individuals, we go through sadness. We turn around and we face it square. And we take courage in walking in. But we have to do that well because sadness can envelop us. And it does. But there's ways in which we could progress through it. Um, we have to be honest with God, ourselves, and others. And we see Job 3, in the way he was honest, it was explicit, it was clear, it was it was so vulnerable and he talked again and again I mean the words he uses where he wants to he wishes he was never born he, if he was born he wishes he was a stillbirth he wishes his mom abandoned him instead of nursing him in her in her on her breast like he wishes he had died he talks about how if you're good at cursing curse the day I was born like use your gift of cursing on me I want to be Friday the 13th I want to be I want my day to be where horror movies and stories are inspired by. He was deeply depressed. He was three inches away from suicidal. It's hard to recognize suicide from regretting your birth. Like, what's the distinction there? So he was willing to enter into that with God, with himself, with his friends. Some of us have gone through horrific things, but we're, we're unable to articulate it, even in our own hearts and minds. We haven't put words to it. We haven't been able to bring it to the Lord. 
and, and honesty is so important. We see that in uh, the book of uh, Psalms as well, as again and again, David allows himself to sit in his grief and express it with clarity. And yet both David and, jo and Job was able to go between grieving and faith and hold on to both. And it's difficult, isn't it? When we grieve, we feel like if I grieve in a deep and honest way, am I not believing in the Lord anymore? Am I just letting him go? Or we grieve and we choose to curse God and, and, and remove ourselves from him. Or if I, if I stand with the Lord, if I have faith in the Lord, does that mean I have to be dishonest with my grief? Because I've seen that a lot as well. We just sugarcoat our grief with our favorite Bible verses, and we don't allow ourselves to enter in. But we see these amazing men of the faith hold on to both their grief in honesty and their faith. It takes great maturity and, and uh, confidence to do that. And then there's the mystery of God. You know, at the end of Job, in verse 39 to 42, um, God doesn't really answer why. And that's all he asks, chapter after chapter, why am I suffering? And God doesn't really say why. And I think I've been saying why less when it comes to people's personal pain. Because there's a mystery to him. I was at a coffee shop the other day preparing the sermon. Someone asked me, why did Kobe die? Why, you know, he went to church the day before. Why would God take him? Why would he take his daughter? And I said, I don't know. But I'm, I'm sad about it. Um, I'm sad with you. I, I, my best answers are cold and academic and, and I think heartless. If I gave him my best answer it would be without any empathy. The way God answers Job is that he just speaks about creation and mystery and awe. And he's, at the end of the day, I think he's saying that even if I told you why, because no one has good why answers for you. And that's, that's the why we really care about. We don't really care about why there's pain in the world. We want to know about why it happened to our hero and why happened to our mother and our daughter? And there's no good answers for why you and not you, why her and not him. There's no good answers. And God knows, but I don't think he's able to communicate that to us in a way we understand. There's this huge knowledge gap that is mysterious and that is worthy of embracing and even worshiping and, and being in awe of him. But if, if Liam came up to me and said, I heard the word predestination. Can you explain that to me? I'm like... You could barely sp say Spider-Man correctly, you know, like you kind of think he's real. He'll ask uh, Jesus to ask Spider-Man for help, right? So that's where we are. It's very hard to get from there to predestination. He, you won't get abstract thought for another 10 years. And so I can just say, I'm with you. I'll walk you through. I'll trust me. And that's most of our answers from the Lord, isn't it? You know, I, I, I love, though, that Jesus walks with us in the darkness. Why we shouldn't give pat answers to others is because Jesus doesn't give pat answers to us. When he's walking with Mary and Martha, and they're grieving Lazarus, and they're even, like, asking Jesus, Rabbi, if you had just come a few days earlier, we told you 
we told you about him dying. We, we measured the distance and time, and you delayed. You delayed for days. Maybe he would still be alive. Jesus didn't say, we're like half a mile away from me resurrecting him. I don't know why you guys are sad. Like, he didn't say that, right? He didn't say this is a 15-minute walk and he's up again. What, did, what happened? He didn't say God is good. He wept. He wept so deeply that people pointed at him and they, they said he loved this man. Everyone's crying, but they noticed his tears, his sorrow. And God doesn't offer answers to us, probably because we won't get it, but he offers himself. And he says, in your deepest pain, when you're walking into darkness, hold my hand. I'll be with you. And not from this like deistic, 3,000 miles away, observing. Not like that. He, he, he makes himself, himself small for us. And he holds our hand. And he cries. And he puts our, his arms uh, over, over our shoulders. I think... One of the most important ways in which we can be sad is to do it with the Lord and to do it with our friends. I had a, one of the deepest uh, privileges I've ever had was speaking to Cal Poly Pomona's uh, crew movement when one of their student leaders had taken her life. This is just about two years ago. And um, she was well-loved. She struggled openly. She fought hard therapy. You know, all the right things. But in, in the end, she made that decision. And three days uh, uh, after that was the big gathering for crew. And they asked me to preach in it. And I, and I told them, like, um, we have to f- walk into darkness holding hands. We can't run away. We can't distract. Um, we can't get addicted to things. We need to go into the darkness but doing, do it holding the hands of the people next to you. Do it, do it holding the hands of Christ. And, and it was such a tender moment. And I believe that for you and for all of us, that, that Jesus is with us in the darkness, that he appears to those who are broken, right? You look at his ministry, and those who can't see him, he finds and walks to. Those who can't reach him to walk to him, he he, he journeys towards those that everyone else ostracized. He moves into their house for dinner. Jesus appears to those who are hurting and broken. And in our grieving, that's where we can see Jesus in the, some of the most powerful ways. Lastly, I do believe in a resurrection. Um, for Lazarus, he got more kids, more possessions, a long life. I think that his grieving and his death, or his like grieving and all the losses are, are true of our deaths. And I think the resurrection of the possessions he gets is true of our afterlife. And sometimes it can happen in this life as well. Does that make sense? Like we don't always get back what we lose on this earth. And yet we do get a resurrection in that God appears 
to us like he does to Job. And maybe that was the greater gift of the Lord replying to him, showing himself. And I believe that in the resurrection, as we move um, through sadness, and it doesn't even mean necessarily we come out of it. I think we can resurrect in sadness. Things change in our hearts. It, it can enlarge. There's a, a, a book about a man who lost his son, and he just writes about grieving, and he says that sadness doesn't have to make us smaller unless we let it, but instead it can enlarge our hearts. He says, I hold sadness with me wherever I go and probably for the rest of my life, but it allows my heart to enlarge for others. When in our resurrection, we have enlarged hearts, we have compassion for others, that we can move into their grief, into their pain. If we are avoiding and numbing and addicted in order to avoid our pain, that's all we have to give to the other person. Right? If, if we just give ourselves religion to, to take away our pain, that's all we have to give to another. But for those of us who are willing to enter into sadness for our own souls, we get to gift our presence and being sad with another soul. We get to have compassion for someone else, to shed tear for another person's pain, to sit with them. We gain humility for God and others. We understand his mystery. We understand we don't have control over everything, that there are losses to life, that it's not a straight line upward. We become less idolatrous. We don't have to impress other people. And I think we get to take greater risks because we're not afraid of loss. We know how to navigate grieving. And there's a liberty in in the way that we can expose ourselves relationally in our, in our job, in our dreams, for those who are able to walk through sadness. And lastly, there's hope in God, that God appears in our sadness. And, you know, when I read through Job, I couldn't help but think about uh, the cruelty of God in the first two chapters. And for the other 37 it's, it's really hard to get past that, that God will allow someone who loves him and, and worships him and is righteous to suffer in those ways. I think Jesus gives us context that his son came. I think if, if it's a God who never came and suffered, it's almost like he's laughing. But, but we have a great high priest who's gone through all of the things that we go through. Um, he was sexually abused as he laid on the cross naked. He was emotionally abused as he, was, as he took accusations that weren't for him, as people spat on his face, as people laughed and jeered in his pain. And obviously he was physically abused by the, the hands and feet being nailed to the cross and the lashes, and he faces death. And I, I think about how he enters into sadness and grief in Gethsemane, how he wails for his father, and then his resurrection. So as we meet Jesus in the darkness, we know he's been there before. He's familiar with it. He's traveled into its depths and come out because he 
held on to God that whole time. And he teaches us how to as well. So in Hebrews, it says, we have a great high priest who can empathize with our weakness, right? He, he knows. He's gone through it. And so we can approach the throne of grace with confidence and receive mercy in our time of need. You know, some of us are going through some deep grieving in this moment. And some of us have work to do in grieving our past. To say, man, I never really grieved that my dad should have been better. He shouldn't have hit us. He shouldn't have been drunk. He shouldn't have been disconnected emotionally. I never grieved about my mom that she could have been more nurturing. right? I never grieved that we grew up in poverty or that there's racism kind of always looking over my shoulder. And so, so God is say, inviting us into sadness and saying, I can hold your hand through it. You know, as we pray this morning and take communion, I, I want us to allow Jesus to enter into the pain and the, the sadness of our souls. And communion is a way in which our darkness and his meets, in which our pain and suffering and his come together to know that we have a God who has suffered and felt our pain in this life, every, every pain, and that he can be with us in it. God, this morning we come to you and we ask that you would allow us to be friends uh, with sadness, that you promise um, to bless those who mourn and grieve because they will be comforted. I pray that when we walk into darkness, we would find your face, Lord, that we would see you meet us there. And so this morning, you know, kind of whatever we were processing at the first question, I pray that we would go there again, but that we would be willing to go there with you, holding your hand, seeing uh, you tear with us, and you hold us in the sorrow. Will we just take a few minutes to talk to the Lord? to allow us to go ourselves, go to either places of pain in this moment or places of pain that we've locked away. And to say, Jesus, would you walk with me here and meet me? And after that, I would love for us to take communion and receive um, his body that was broken for us, his blood that was shed, in order to give us resurrection, that there is hope in Jesus. And lastly, we would love to pray for you. We have um, a rug on the side, and I know some of you guys are hurting this morning, and um, as pastors, uh, we would love to sit in it with you and invite Jesus into it as well.